My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um. <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that can't believe we're at episode two already. This one is a cracker. In it, you will meet the absolutely fascinating Timo Rissanen. It was such a pleasure to have a deep conversation with this New York-based academic and expert on zero-waste fashion design. We're not just wittering on about clothes, although Zoolander and the Chanel spaceship do come up. Timo is the Assistant Professor of Fashion Design and Sustainability at the famous Parsons The New School for Design in New York. He teaches his students to rethink traditional ways of approaching design, to consider the entire life cycle of a garment, and to factor in reducing waste from the outset. But it's not just about cutting waste from the cutting tables. Of the approximately 80 billion garments produced every year, about a third are sold full price, a third on sale, a third are never sold at all. Much of this surplus is destroyed. Timo argues that we must conquer our cynicism and use our creativity to find solutions. The fashion industry, which he has described as seemingly grotesque, wasteful and deadly, is also a source of endless possibility. We talk about how to harness that possibility, how to keep hopeful in the face of scary statistics like the one I just shared and also things like climate change. And we talk about resilience and we talk about the power of art because Timo has a side hustle. Yep, he's also an artist. Timo, you are a very important man from Parsons in New York, but we are recording this in Australia. You actually studied here, and now you're back for five weeks as artist in residence at your alma mater, UTS, University of Technology, Sydney. You're working in public at a desk under the stairs, creating art by needlepoint. Please, can you tell us about your cross-stitch poetry? Sure. Um... And thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's really a, a great pleasure. Um, so the project that I'm doing here, I am writing a letter to the library in 2117, so in 100 years from now. And that's actually very much connected to my work in sustainability because in sustainability we need to talk about and think about timescales that often exceed our own lifespans. And it's really hard for people. I mean, most of us don't plan more than five years ahead. But you're writing that letter in cross-stitch. Yes, I am. Uh, so that's something I've been doing for the past year. And it was partly in response to just wanting to slow down in a city that is not very slow. And also desired to do something with my hands again. Because I do think there's something very primevally human. I don't know if that's a word. But anyway, uh, pushing 
thread with a needle through fabric. You know, humans have been doing that for tens of thousands of years. And I do feel that connection when I do that. And I'm all for technology as well. I mean, I'm not a Luddite in any way. In the age of robots and artificial intelligence and beyond the machine, are we in danger of losing that connection with the hand and the mind? And why is it important? I mean, in some ways, maybe we are in danger. But there's a lot of people doing work that I hope that means that we won't. And the whole question of artificial intelligence is quite interesting because I've recently read about certain parts of the fashion designer's job being replaced by artificial intelligence. And I even read one article where it was said that, you know, in the future, academics will be replaced by artificial intelligence. Well, they're already saying that judges could be superfluous. And actually, today I was reading an article in The Guardian about the evolution of the sex doll, whereby you could actually have a whole wife at home who says to you, hey, honey, I'm glad you're home. Here's a cocktail. I'm not sure if she makes a cocktail. Yeah. Um, But I digress. Yeah. But it's um, it'll be interesting to see where we head. And, you know, there's, of course, all the questions about what is the future of work, um, because I think we're kind of not being honest about the fact that in a couple of decades, most likely, there won't be enough work for all of us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if we handle it in the right way. Um, But I, I do worry that, you know, the people in power aren't necessarily talking about that as much as they should be. Fascinating questions that opens up. We're going to talk more about how we need to train our designers to cope with the future. But to start with, Timo, I would love for you to share with us a little bit about how you got to where you got. So you didn't always yearn to be a cross-stitcher or a fashion lecturer or an expert in sustainability. Um, The teenage you wanted to be a conservation scientist, Kaivin said it, conservation scientist, and with a particular interest in bird life. What happened? (laughs) It's a funny question um, and a good one because I ask, ask myself that every now and again. How did I end up here? So I come from a family that was very nature-oriented back in Finland. Um, you know, we would go into the woods in, in the autumn and forage for mushrooms and big berries, and, and we would fish for food. I think I learned how to gut a fish at, like, the age of five or something. Um, yeah, with fishing with Dad. And um, birds came from Dad as well. Dad was a bird watcher, and, and I became one too. And I, I was always interested in conservation. We were members of Greenpeace in the 80s when it wasn't that trendy. But then when I was 18... I met a fashion designer who had just graduated from fashion school. And I had an interest in fashion. I mean, I, I was very experimental in terms of my dressing. So in the early 90s, I was wearing my mum's clothes from the 70s to school. That's cool. <laughs> so, I was going to ask you to paint a picture of what you looked like. Yeah. What were they? Yeah, the, um, Velvet flares. Yeah, and satin shirts. Like, <laughs> like oh, they were really more like blouses, I think. <laughs> I'm seeing rock, glam rock. It was a bit. Um, there's one class photo from 93 or 94 where it's like, yeah, you thought you were a rock star, didn't you? <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I never thought of it as a job. And then I, being kind of a little bit OCD with things, once I decided that I was going to become a fashion designer, I kind of just set out this plan. I was going to go to fashion school, but then I also met a man man from Australia and decided to move to Australia for him and actually moved at the age of 20 uh, to Sydney and came to UTS to study fashion design. And I had one teacher here who was very sustainably minded, even in the 90s when it wasn't really done, Julia Rath. She was my textile designer. She's in Melbourne now. And um, I think she planted a seed in a lot of us because I've spoken with classmates from from my year and around that time and they all remember Julia talking about you know the particularly the chemical impacts of textiles and so I think she planted a seed and then 
in 2004 when I put my, I had a menswear brand here in Sydney called Us Versus You. And, um, Us Versus You. Yeah, it was spelled U-S-V-S-U because I was really clever at the <laughs> age of 25. It could almost be the name <laughs> of your glam rock band. It could be, and maybe it should be. Um, and when I put that on hold, I applied for a PhD at UTS. And, and some of the things that had happened during my undergraduate had made me speculate that you could design in a way that didn't waste any fabric and that became my PhD topic and 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 then eventually the word word zero waste fashion design also emerged out of that I didn't come up with that term and I don't know who did really it kind of sort of percolated up through the various conversations anyway that was my PhD and and by then I was teaching part-time as well and um, actually fell in love with teaching because the extraordinary thing about teaching is you actually get to see the world change in front of you because you see mm. the students come up or arrive at like new ideas about what fashion can be and could be. And, um, and that's the thing that makes me optimistic in the face of some terrifying news about climate and other things. But when I speak with my students, I actually get optimistic about things. So I do love what I do. I'm very lucky to do what I do as a teacher. We're going to talk later about the power of imagination and the ability to create change out of thin air if you have the mental gymnastic ability, maybe. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think uh, creativity is, is one of the most powerful things that humans have and um, we don't often use it to its full power. We let our cynicism get in the way. And my, myself as well. I mean, I, I'm constantly trying to interrupt my cynicism about things. And, I, you know, you can develop mastery around that too. I love that. I love that. I actually want to write that down and stick it on my wall. Yeah, please. Because I think we all need to do that. Yeah, no, I, I didn't come up with it myself. I read this book by John Wood. He's at, I think he's at Goldsmith in London. But he's written a lot about utopias and, and design for utopias. And, and he, one chapter in his book 10 years ago was devoted to cynicism, I think. Was it? I must yeah. read that. I will share some links in the show notes after this so that you can follow up on some of this great material that Timo is sharing with us. I want to get into this whole idea of zero waste fashion, which drives your practice and your work and your teaching. But first of all, I'd like to just hear a little bit about your perspective on the fashion industry, especially as a gypsy. I mean, I talked about that idea before with you that a lot of fashion people are gypsies in that they roam around a bit, but they often find themselves drawn to those hubs of London, Paris, New York. Yeah. You ended up in New York. How did you get to Parsons School of Design? So in 2008, Parsons created this role, Assistant Professor of Fashion Design and Sustainability, and I heard about it through a friend. Um, but at that point, I had just got a full-time job at UTS, so I wasn't even considering moving continents. Um, but then this friend was at Parsons and they were quite persistent. So six, for six months, they kept saying, you should apply for this job. And then I thought, well, there's no harm in applying. And um, and I will, probably won't get it anyway. But as it Cynicism. Turned, yeah. <laughs> as it turned out, I got the job. And the university, the new school university, which Parsons is a part of, has sustainability written into their mission, mission statement. And um, so the way that that then kind of goes through different parts of the university. It's made it much easier for us to, you know, work sustainability into the curriculum and into our kind of like philosophy of teaching. And uh, we still have a lot of work to do, but we've been able to do a fair few things already. Extraordinary. Um, Parsons is extraordinary. It's one of those magic names of fashion that people look dream about. 
some of the illustrious names who've walked those corridors are what Mark Jacobs, yeah, and Donna Karen, and Tom um, Ford. Tom Ford. Although I think he did, he I, did interior design. Yeah, I he think. did. Yeah. Um, Alexander Wang. Yep, he did two years. He left after two years, so he never actually graduated. Neither did Donna Karen. Um, Donna Karen failed draping, and she's been actually. I, I have to uh, give a shout out to Donna because she has given so much back to Parsons. I mean, she endowed the um, master's program at Parsons and, um, and you know, comes back and is passionate about, you know, students and what, what students can do. And and now she does, with Urban Zen, she does this project in Haiti every year. And um, where a selected number of graduating students go to Haiti and work with artisans there and, um, and see a very different side to New York, which I think is very important. And that's actually something we've also started to do in other ways as well. In November, we partnered with an organization called Remake, and three of our students uh, went to Cambodia to meet government workers in Cambodia. And that was a really transformative experience for them because I, I, I do think that often for designers, they might know about some of the things that happen in Cambodia or Bangladesh, wherever, but it is very abstract. So for them to see it firsthand and they really got to, I mean, they saw great examples. There's a zero waste brand called Tonle who- I've heard know, about Tonle, fabulous. So they met with Tonle, which was, you know, the example of things that are great, but they also saw other things that were more problematic and heard about some of the challenges as well. Could you perhaps just sum up what Tonle does? So it's a, it's a brand that, um, that you know is committed to creating no waste. So I think some of the things that they do, they actually work with waste from other companies, and um, and they also are really creative in how they approach waste within their company. So there really is, like they're really eliminating the idea that there is such a thing as waste. Which, in fabric. Yeah, in fabric. So everything gets used one way or another. And there's other companies that have been equally creative in that. So Natalie Channon from Alabama Channon, she has been. She's modeled her company like a farm. That's how she puts it. So a traditional farm has no waste. Like everything is in these different cycles, essentially like a circular economy. And so she's aimed to build her company over the last 15 years like that. And the other person that I often think of is Christina Kim from Dosa, based in LA, but primarily manufactures out of India. And again, often when we hear somebody's manufacturing in India, that's all bad. But in fact, Christina has been working with her her manufacturers for I think at least 15 years if not longer and the relationship is one of you know mutual care and respect. So there's great artisanal skill in, in places like India. Absolutely and you can find sweatshops uh, in Sydney. I've seen like when I worked here I saw some and um, and I saw some practices that made me I mean I this was just after I'd graduated and I remember one company I worked for we we had someone pick up the cut work in the evening and they dropped it off dropped off the made-up garments the next morning and it was like who sold them during the night because you know the rest of us went home and slept but somebody actually made these garments uh, during the night and that was in Sydney not in China or India and I've seen some places in New York too where it's like I'm not sure about those conditions in that factory like what's happening in there so it's important to kind of not make those blanket statements that China India is bad and western countries are good because often that is not it's much more case-specific than that. I want to talk about the fashion industry um, a little bit more in terms of how it kind of operates. Like you must meet lots of fashion insiders in your role in New York. Have you worked with Caring? We, I mean, Parsons has had a relationship with Caring for, I'd say, five or six years, if not longer. Among other things, they sponsor a scholarship. 
And I was actually on a panel talk with um, Monsieur Pinot two years ago. Really, I mean, he's a billionaire, but he's very down to earth. And he shared about, you know, when, when they were interviewing for the Gucci creative director, they actually, all of the applicants were presented with a question about sustainability and they hadn't been told in advance. And most of the candidates weren't prepared for that question. But of course, because of him and also I think that, you know, they have a really robust sustainability team across the brands uh, as well as within you know, it is part of their core values now. And um, that's proof of it. How yeah. I do also get optimistic when business leaders like him are showing the way that, yes, there is a lot of work to do, but we are taking it on. And another business leader that I think of often is Eileen Fisher, who, you know, two years ago said that by 2020, we are going to be a sustainable company. We have no idea how to get there. And it's a really tight time frame, but we're going to, you know, do our best to get there in these four years. If you don't put the goalposts into yeah. the ground, you have no way of getting Exactly. There. And I think it's important to have really bold goals. And um, and it's okay if you don't meet them, but you're probably going to have a great time trying <laughs> and you're going to learn a lot from trying. Because I think these pissy little goals, sorry, I don't know if that's a, <laughs> a podcastable word. I like it. It's a podcastable <laughs> word yeah, yeah. on wardrobe crisis. <laughs> yeah, like pissy goals, like what's the point? Like I, I think it's... Like you said, if it's easy, it's not worth getting. Exactly. And um, and I, I do think that when companies, are, you know, put themselves on the line and fairly publicly like Eileen Fisher has, and to some extent even H&M, I think, have, there's a lot for us to be, lot, lots for us to learn from, from companies like that. You've just shared some examples of companies that are striving to do the right thing. And this question isn't about companies that are doing the opposite, but it's sort of in that ballpark. Fashion is known for its excess and yeah. its craziness and its nuttiness. And I, I think I made the example when we chatted before this about Chanel. I mean, we're talking about a context in which Chanel thinks it's normal to erect a spaceship in the Grand Palais. Grand Palais, how do you say that? Grand yeah. Palace. Um, <laughs> during, during Fashion Week. And that spaceship pretty much took off as yeah. Carl ascended into its doorway at the end of the show. This is a, an industry that is based on excess creativity. Create uh, crazy creativity, yeah. but also this kind of rapacious more is more. Yeah, and idea. and it's a difficult yeah. question, I think, because I grew up like as a fashion designer in the nineties with you know the kinds of shows that Westwood and Galliano and McQueen would do that absolutely blew your mind. Like the the creativity and imagination that was in those shows, it's magical to me to this day. I don't see the same magic in Lagerfeld putting a rocket ship (laughs) but it's funny because you mentioned those those designers particularly McQueen they were and and Westwood they were making things out of nothing really I mean Galliano had to nick his fabric didn't he or borrow it yeah I mean 94 I mean he was bankrupt essentially and he did that one collection in um, this mansion in in Paris and um, you know all the supermodels did the show for free for him and it was Anna Wintour really was behind it like she believed in him and, and really lifted him up, up. And within two years, he was at Shimashi and, and then Dior a year later. And I do think that often having very scarce resources can be one of the biggest drivers of creativity. Whereas with the Chanel show, I just like, I'm probably not alone, but when I was watching the photos like appear on Instagram, I'm like, what a waste of money. I know, right? And I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Chanel's magical. I think Carl's a genius. He's obviously a genius. And yet we are seeing a kind of almost 
almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how yeah. excessive fashion can be. How do we, how do we flip that, Timo, and, and try to, how do you tell the most extravagant industry on the planet that it should embrace the less is more? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question. But then again, actually, not not for me because, uh, you know, on the flip side of the '90s, it was Margiela, Helmut Lang, and the Müller like all of those. Like, like what can we strip off yeah. um, and like just have this black figure go down the runway? So, it does happen. <laughs> yeah. But and for me, there's no conflict between that kind of aesthetic and you know the most extravagant uh, shows that McQueen and and um, Galliano did. And I look, I do think that we should never kind of lose the ability to kind of have this magic imagination. Like, mm. I remember some of the editorial shoots that got me into fashion in the early 90s, you know, in magazines like um, The Face and ID, where you had incredible people doing incredible things. And, um, and that, I think, is a good thing about fashion, that when you can present these fantasies, and it's fine when people say, oh, I wouldn't wear that. Like, I mean, who would? You know, other than, yeah, like that. There are always people that will will wear those things as well. But I think, you know, imagination is important. It's just, I'm just not sure that that Chanel show was about that anymore. It was yeah. more about the spectacle of it, and it was almost like, how can we just like make people in awe of this thing because mm. nobody's sent a rocket ship from a fashion show before. <laughs> but I guess it's not the problem that we have is not in aesthetic excess it's in gobbling up resources it's in excessive waste it's in i guess that disconnect between the real and the possible and the crazy and the impossible well how do you let's pull that back down to your passion which is zero waste Mm -hmm. um what exactly is zero waste fashion so the way I defined it in my PhD was a very specific waste. I, I looked at the pre-consumer waste that's created when clothes are manufactured, and that's roughly 15%, or at least the text that I I cited um, and actually found in this very library said um, it's approximately 15%. And so 15% of, of the fabric that's used to make the clothing that we wear is wasted when, when the clothes are manufactured. So only 85% of the fabric is actually in the clothes that we wear. And are you talking about the fabric as it's laid out on the cutting table and yeah. then a pattern is cut from it, or are you talking about...? That, that specific waste. There's other waste as well. Like at the end of the season, a company might have 200 meters of fabric left over, and that's a different kind of waste. It's, it's still fabric waste as well. And it's worth looking what happens to that. In a good scenario, it ends up in fabric stores like the Sudi here in Sydney or the Mood and a number of other stores in New York, which all sell end of season or off season uh, designer fabrics. That's the good scenario because it, it still, you know, ends up being used as fabric. The bad scenarios include um, landfill, and um, also incineration. Like I, I remember having a conversation with one very well-known company in New York, which I won't mention. Um, they burn all of their end-of-season fabrics. And we're talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of beautiful fabrics that get incinerated. Are they burning it because they want to spot, stop anyone else having their exactly. IP? Yeah, that's exactly the reason. I, I wish know... that there was a film of me doing the face that I just pulled. Yeah. <laughs> I have very physical reactions to these. Like I, I, I get physically nauseous when I hear some of, mm. of some of the things. Well, it um, seems like a metaphor to believe that actually companies are setting fire yeah. 
to valuable, usable fabric. Yeah, and even they acknowledge that this is insane, but we don't know what else to do. Because even in that company's case, it was the print designs that, you know, they've invested lots of money in having these exclusive prints from designers. And so they don't want anyone else to get them. God, what's the answer? I like I think we need to start looking at at the systems level like if if that's the problem then like how do we implement systems that then deal with it I mean for me the easy well easy ish I mean it still continues resources but like just dyed all black it might not work in some cases but I'm sure there are cases where it would like actually just dye the fabric black and then that will take care of it. Is it not possible to um, design out of the equation overproduction of fabric? So that would be ideal. That That would be ideal, actually. Um, And that's where we would need to engage with the textile industry. Like, let's not... I mean, we should only be producing to orders, uh, which is lean manufacturing, where you get the orders first and then you manufacture exactly to those orders. But the, the whole system of the industry, going back 150 years, if not more, the way the textile industry is set up to sell fabric to the fashion industry is not set up in a lean way. It's set up to create excess all all along the way. And now fashion is also, for a lot of fashion is also producing not to order, but on speculation. And that's where you end up with huge amounts of excess. I mean, one figure that I saw a year ago in the Netherlands was that a third of 30 sold at full price of all clothing produced. A third is sold at a, uh, at discount, and a third is never sold. A now, third is never sold. I mean, what? I know, and that like, I've been quoting the eighty billion garments per year, but then so eighty this... billion garments are produced approximately every year. Yeah, and of those eighty billion, uh, a third is never sold. Now. That was at a conference in the Netherlands about a year ago, and those figures have been disputed. But this person who presented them, he'd done research based on um, import figures in the Netherlands and then contrasted them with the retail figures. When you talk about the possibility of a third of those 80 billion garments never being sold, where do they end up? They can't all be burnt. A A lot of them are burnt. I mean, again, in the good scenario, I think... This is a stressful conversation. It is, it is. And I don't think it's limited to fashion either. I mean, I remember reading a few years ago of factories in China, not clothing factories, but like things that would manufacture household goods and so forth. It was basically cheaper for them to just keep producing than to actually pause the machinery that that, that was producing the things. And so they just keep producing. And and I remember also reading stories of this, of freight ships full of stuff, whether it's clothing or something else, like basically just finding a port where they can offload, offload their um, goods. So we are in a system that's just designed to produce more and more and more to to keep the economy going, the, the current economic system that we have. And that's where I think design is going to play a key role because I do think that we need to start looking at the economy as a design problem and designing new economic solutions to deal with it um, so that we still prosper, but where pros- prosperity isn't necessarily defined in this very narrow way of just, I would say, a few people having way too much money, um, way yeah. more than they know what to deal with, yeah. do with and where the majority of people are barely scraping through. And um, because that's the reality, like it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what the GDP of a country is. When you actually look at the well-being of people, I mean, America is a great example. It's the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet you have 15%, I think is the figure, 15% of the population um, living under the poverty poverty line. Yeah, 
and that is not prosperity. I, I would, you know, the system isn't working. I was going to ask you if the fashion system is broken, but I think if we're looking at it on this level, we're saying the whole economic system is, or the whole idea of the capitalist economic system is broken. It is, and I think fashion is a very visible manifestation of it. And there's problems within fashion, like that are specific to fashion. Certainly, I think all of the problems with chemicals and and um, you know we're putting really toxic things into our clothing, and um, and we are actually absorbing some of them through our skin, our mm. biggest organ. And we really don't know what all of that's doing to us. So there's, there's those fashion-specific problems. But I do think that the problem of the economy is one that we need to deal with very quickly because we've already breached the planetary boundary for the carbon cycle. Like the carbon cycle on this planet is completely out of whack. The nitrogen cycle is completely out of whack. The rate of biodiversity loss on this planet is, you know, we're losing species at about a thousand times the normal rate of extinction. And so we need to deal with these things very quickly. Mm. Um, I mean, the window's closing. It is. And that's, you know, why I'm writing this letter to people in 100 years from now, because I don't care if nobody else says it to me, but somewhere in that letter will also be an apology. Sorry about the things that we have done. You know, and there's lots of us who are working to resolve them. You know, every species that is lost, right now we don't have technology to bring them back. Cloning is not the solution because even then you can only clone one individual. And so then yeah. what are you going to do? <laughs> like, where are you going to get them made for that Gosh. other one? When you think about the mountains that we have to climb in order to turn some of this stuff around, particularly when we're talking about the environment, it can be ever so depressing. I don't know. How do you stay not depressed? <laughs> um, sometimes I very deliberately look for the success stories because right. when humans want to do good, we can do incredible things. And there are amazing people doing amazing things. And I often share some of the stories and I often use birds as examples. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, with my students. So for example, in New Zealand, there's some amazing work happening in wildlife conservation. And, and because New Zealand has been isolated as, an, as a set of islands for tens of millions of years, it's primarily bird life that took over New Zealand. So What's that giant flightless bird they've got? Uh, kakapo, the the parrot that kind of has the same role as a rabbit in in Europe because it kind of it lives on the ground and it does climb trees and it's gigantic it's I think six or eight kilos and it, yeah it is flightless and it looks more like an owl than a parrot and there's hundred and it's something like 150 of them left but in the 90s there was only about 50 so that's a, a perfect example where work is actually finally producing results and there's a the kakapo recovery project has a website that you know i go to often to when i want to find like just five minutes of like i need to just like read something good <laughs> so i, I read about a good news story yeah. uh, in north america there's the la- i think it's one of the largest birds in north america the whooping crane um in the 40s they were down to i think 14 individuals and there's over 600 now Gosh. and um not only that but Cranes learn their migration um, uh, routes from their parents. So when a particular population dies out, that knowledge dies out. And uh, the only population that's left nests in northern Canada and then they migrate to Texas. In order to teach a new population of cranes uh, a new home and a new wintering ground, in 2001, this organization called Operation Migration, they started leading cranes from Wisconsin to Florida and had them follow ultralights. So they conditioned these crane babies to think that this guy in a white suit in an ultralight is a crane. 
And then they fly 1,200 miles. And retort them. Yeah. And so those cranes have been migrating between Florida and Wisconsin uh, for 16 years now. And so stories like that, and that would be one where cynicism would have been very high, like, no, this is an insane idea. And yet, you know, the small group of people said, no, we're going to give yeah. it a go. I find stories like that. And there's also amazing stories of designers coming up with ways to clean water with like really cheap, inexpensive things. Um, so I, when I get depressed, I actually go and find the good people doing the good work. How do we then um, solve the problem? I know it's a too big a problem. It's not the whole problem of waste in the fashion industry. But can you just talk to us a little bit about your ideas behind zero waste design? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no one solution. We need lots of people coming up with solutions that's appropriate for their company and also for their customers. Um, because it's not just the waste you need to. It needs to be appropriate for whoever the clothing is for as well. Um, and again, and, and at different scales, when you start to look into systems thinking, you know, resilient systems have things of different scales. So it did, you know, this idea of a blanket solution, which sometimes I see people kind of like, what's the one silver bullet that's going to yeah, take care of? There isn't, there, there isn't one. We need a diversity of solutions at different scales and different speeds. And thankfully, there's now lots of people doing things. So you have companies like Eileen Fisher at sort of larger end. And then you have lots and lots of small designers, which sometimes get dismissed. Like people say, oh, well, how do you scale that up? I actually think scaling out, which is having lots of people doing things at small scale, that is a different version of scale. What else can designers do on the cutting table or at the design stage to reduce that fabric offcut waste that we began speaking about? So I think creative pattern cutting is the way, I mean, that's how I do it. You know, that's what my PhD focused on is how, how do we creatively cut through um, fabric in a way that doesn't actually waste any. Um, and that was kind of a mindset shift because often pattern cutting isn't thought of that way. Pattern cutting is often thought of as just a response to the designer's sketch. So whatever the designer sketched, you know, then the pattern cutter creates that and, um, the amount of waste isn't even a consideration. Mm. Other than maybe for economic reasons, sometimes a seam might be added so that you can get the garment from slightly less fabric because it'll end up costing less. Mm. But even then, there's usually waste, and the waste is all, always costed in anyway. So it's in the price of the garment anyway. So you're literally changing the shape of a garment or changing the seam placement? Sometimes, or... yeah. And, and there's limitations with the method that I explored in my PhD. It's not the, always the appropriate, and I found that out as well. I mean, some of the garments that I made in my PhD did waste some fabric, and it would have been a compromise to the aesthetics of the garment. If I, they, or did they just look a bit shit? We like yeah. to say that in the podcast. <laughs> oh, I had some of the first garments that I made in my PhD, they were terrible. I remember my husband looking at a pair of trousers that I tried on, like he couldn't stop laughing. It's like, like, Nobody's that shape, <laughs> and, uh, hopefully. <laughs> it works for Comme des Garçons. Yeah. But it was also a brilliant moment for me because I realized in that moment that absolutely you can't compromise aesthetics or fit. Like if something feels weird on, uh, when you put it on, like it's like feels like it's falling off or whatever, you know, nobody's going to want to wear it. And so it's almost like this dance between waist and aesthetics and fit and, and also cost because some of the things that I've designed would be very expensive to manufacture because there are extra seams. So sometimes I think if wasting a little bit is makes it more feasible to manufacture, then go for it. Then we have to also have systems in place to 
captured that way so that it doesn't just get incinerated. And that's happening too. Certainly in New York, there's a number of startups that have emerged in the last five years that, you know, can collect scrap even from small businesses. Because sometimes you have the limitation of, of scale. I remember years ago, I researched this a little bit. And um, one company that I found in Massachusetts, they only wanted to deal with big quantities of fabric waste, which I understand because it's easier and more profitable for them. But there are now sort of almost like boutique startups that are dealing with small scale waste as well. So what do they do with it? That was going to be one of my questions. Um, I don't know if you've come across a brand in Sydney called Citizen Wolf. They make bespoke T-shirts, so they're all made to order. Yeah. And they, for a long time, or they've only been in business for a year, but for the first year, they struggled with what to do with their off-cut cotton jersey waste. And eventually they found a fabric artist who makes them into jewellery pieces. Great. I guess she plaits and knits them into fabric jewellery. But how do independent designers find ways to to reuse their off-cut waste? And and what services are out there for perhaps young designers starting up? Or how would you suggest they think around that? I think that's a brilliant example of creative thinking and finding a solution that's appropriate for their scale, because that wouldn't be appropriate for a Calvin Klein, because you would have to have like 10,000 jewellery designers on hand to, to, to deal with the volume. Can it be recycled? A lot of it can. In fact, almost, well, most textile waste can be recycled one way or another. It's often easier if it's single fibre, so 100% cotton, um, you know, there's one company in Spain that actually recycles it by color as well. So they they produce 100% recycled cotton that doesn't require bleaching and dyeing afterwards because they sort it by color as well. So they keep the color palette. And of course, that takes effort when you, when you have to have, you know, separate bins for all the different colors. And then it can get really tricky when you have lycra because a lot of our fabrics today have 4% or 10% lycra in them. And that does produce challenges for recycling. So often that kind of fabric can only be shredded and turned into felt. But even that's better than burning it or landfilling it. I want to finish up just by talking about an essay that I read. Um, And I will share this link because it's fantastic. So it's for a story that ran in the Helsinki-based One Court magazine last year that Timo wrote, and it's called, What is Fashion Good For? It's a good question. Um, You describe the fashion industry, and I quote, as seemingly grotesque, wasteful, and deadly. (laughs) I think we've all heard the gruesome stuff, you know, pesticide use, which we just talked about, Rana Plaza, some of the terrible wages that are are paid throughout the garment industry. What, What about good stuff? What is fashion good for, Timo? I think... One of the things that I now see, too, is because a lot of the problems are kind of magnified in fashion and they're certainly, they might be more visible in fashion than in some of the other industries, even though they exist across the board. I think when we create solutions to those problems, they can also be exemplary to to the rest of the world. And there are, again, I will mention companies like um, Eileen Fisher, where they are now taking back garments from their customers and have been doing that for six or seven years same with Patagonia and you know Patagonia I think they employ something like 45 people just to do repair at their headquarters those kinds of examples you know they can then become the sort of exemplary goalposts for other companies and not just in fashion so making things repairable and actually have have it be okay that your customers are skilled in 
in repair because I think Patagonia in particular have been leading the way. They don't just repair garments for their customers, but they also train their customers how to repair things themselves. They're amazing. And, and that should start to permeate across the board. Um, have people actually be skilled in, in the things that we live with and not just be consumers. Coming back to the hand, as we yeah. talked about, those skills that are ancient and were passed down but have increasingly been lost. Yeah, and also being inventive and creative with, with the things. And like, Because I do think you can be really inventive with repair. Certainly some of the clothes that I wear are very inventively repaired, which I almost sometimes take as a test, like, like have I crossed the line? Like, can I still wear this in public without like, people laughing? Pointing his chair. Yeah which is a fun experiment to do every now and again. And just finally, let's talk about young people and about students. Um, so if you, you mentioned there that fashion by its very visibility can be a kind of a change maker because people are looking. It yes. makes a lot of noise. It does. And I think we are seeing younger designers wanting to make noise in perhaps a better way. Yep. I could name a few kind of... There was a London designer that I came across at London Fashion Week called... Austin Steinmetz. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw what she's doing with denim, yeah. but super interesting. Yeah. So you're getting this young generation of, of new designers who want to push the system yeah. and be more responsible. Yeah. Do you think? And are you seeing that in your Absolutely. World? I mean, the, I've been teaching now for 14 years and every generation has been more informed when they arrive at fashion school than the generation before and more and more demanding, like teach us how to do this in a way that doesn't impair the next generation's ability to actually just live. And we should constantly be, you know, putting them, uh, you know, highlighting them. You're a storyteller and and you do a fantastic job of telling these stories. And that's another thing that fashion does too well. We are great storytellers. You know, those designers that I mentioned earlier, Galliano, McQueen and Westwood, they are also people that tell compelling stories with, with the work in fashion that they do. And also people like you, we absolutely need you know, positive and imaginative storytelling. And I don't mean it from like a marketing bullshit kind of perspective. Um, we do do that as well. But like, there is something to be said for inspiring stories. That's how you get people on board. Yes, we do also need to talk about the problems. But if we only focus on the problems, we're going to shut people down and um, nobody wants to do anything. And with the young people, you know, we need to train them to be literate in ways that they can work with scientists, that they can work with economists, that they can work with anthropologists, because fashion does sometimes exist in a bubble and it's not going to solve its problems if it stays in that bubble. We need to work with everyone across the board. We need to have fashion designers working with chemists. We need to have fashion designers working with, you know, forward-thinking economists. And there are many of them. I just read this article about a new book uh, on donut economics which is kind of an alternative to um well not kind of it's an alternative to the kind of growth-based economics and um, i haven't heard that phrase um it was george monbio who um oh, wrote yeah. about the book he didn't write the book but he's um, a legend he is. i love his writing and um i have got the book on my kindle um and i will eventually get to it <laughs> and, and so, so what is that exactly so that from what i've understood it's uh it is also, it uses donut as a metaphor, and, and I think to some extent there's, uh, the donut is uh, representative of the planetary boundaries that I I talked about before. So Coming back to circularity. Yeah, yeah, circularity, and also that the economy must stay within the boundaries of the planet. Like there are limits that the planet provides, and we must stay, uh, stay within those 
limits, but it doesn't have to mean that we live this life of scarcity. We can still be prosperous and and have amazing lives living within those limits. And I think some of that work goes all the way back to someone like Herman Daly, who was a, who is an economist, worked for the World Bank in the 80s, and, and a lot of Kate Fletcher's work, for example, has kind of been grounded in Herman Daly's economic work, and, and Kate was actually the one that got me onto his work as well. So really, when we're coming back to students, and if we're leaving listeners with a few thoughts about what students can achieve and what qualities they might need, I'm hearing imagination. Yep. And um, connecting because they've got to reach out from their bubble. Yeah. And yeah, different kind of literacies. Get interested in economics. Get interested in politics. Absolutely crucial in 2017, given what's happening on the world stage in politics. It, we can't be complacent anymore because decisions are being made that will impact people that we'll never meet in the future. And I would leave leave people with the question, how do you want us to be known and remembered in 100 years? That's what I'm doing with this letter downstairs with the cross-stitched letter. How do you want people to look back in 100 years from now and think about us, think about the decisions we made and what kind of world we gave them? That's what I would ask everyone to ask themselves on a regular basis because it starts to open up things in a different way. Brilliant. Big questions. Bigger than Chanel's spaceship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's the end. Thank you. you. That was awesome. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you Jack Rabbit FM For your ears Who is that? Hi Puck Pass